Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, friends. Welcome to a special edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Today we have Hall of Famer uh, and uh, returning guest of this show. Steve Flink, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome him again. We speak after all the four majors. We've been doing that for the past couple of years. So I thought it'd be awesome to have him on again to talk about the year-end championships of the ATP finals, the most significant ATP-only event of the year and probably the fifth biggest tournament of the year. So, uh, Steve, how how are you? Good, fine. So I'm looking forward to it as always. It's always a pleasure talking tennis with you. Same here, Steve. Um, so I, I, I guess let, let's start with Novak Djokovic's year overall, his his uh, his season and his uh, capping it off by winning the ATP Finals. Obviously, for the sixth time, uh, seven year gap in between having won it uh, since having won it last time in 2015, and uh, you know now he's equaled Roger Federer for six titles here at this tournament. Now he's won it at three different venues, and you know went five and zero this this year. So, what are some of your highlights of uh, of Djokovic uh, in Turin? Yeah, Vance, before I get into the highlights, and there were many, I just want to recap a bit for the listeners, and these are things you probably know as well as I do, but I want the listeners to realize, I don't think he's wanted this tournament so badly in a long, long time, because as you alluded to, 2015 was when he won his fifth. He was rolling along that. Then he comes back in 16, and he gets to the finals, and 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 he's playing Murray. And that match was to decide who would be number one in the world for the year. So it was a big deal. It was surprising, a surprising loss. He didn't play well at all in that final. Murray was first rate. And Murray managed to nose his way past Novak to end that year at number one, deservedly, because it was all on the line in that final. Disappointing loss for Djokovic. Then he was having his injury woes in 17, so forget that. But in 18, he marched into the final without having – we crushed everybody on his way to the finals and then lost his era, who he beat. In the round robin, he loses that final. A little surprising. 19, loses a heartbreaker to team that kept him out of the semis. 20, up 4-1 in the final set tiebreak. And then it was a very similar loss to team in 2020 in the semis. And finally, 2021, he plays against Zarev. He played very well coming into the semis. Played a good semi, but he lost a hard-fought three-set semi to Zarev. So you look at that path. And you realize why, he, you know, that he had he was particularly motivated, I think, given that he felt like he probably should have won a couple of those along the way or, or certainly was in a might have been in a position to do so. So he comes in this time, having lost that match to Holger Runa, as you know, in that hard fought close skirmish in Paris that he probably should have won where he led 3-1, 40-30, uh, third set and, and got beaten 7-5 in the third. Great effort from Holger Runa. So he came into this championship, I think, really primed. And I remember the first thing he said, Bob, after the match to Runa, or one of the one of the first interviews after that, he said, 
I still like my chances in Turin. I like my chances in Turin. Told you how much he wanted it and how his confidence had not been dented. So highlights. Well, I'd say, let me just recap it briefly, and then we can bounce a few ideas off each other. But he starts off with Tsitsipas, and who he had beaten in a, in a really tough semifinal in, in, uh, in Paris before losing to Runa. And it was just one break in the first game of the match. Novak breaks uh, Stefanos and then eventually wins 6-4, 7-6. He played very well. I don't know if it was his best match of the tournament, but it was a first-class Tsitsipas who served awfully well after that opening game and made it tough. It was a very fast court, as you know, very quick court. So then he plays probably his best match of the week to wipe away Andre Rublev. Four and one, you know, and it was four all in the first sets. He won eight of the last nine games. He really picked up his returning in that second set. And then the most impressive match to me, one of the most impressive wins of his career was his seemingly meaningless round-robin clash with Medvedev, who he, as you know, Vonch, uh, he thinks of Medvedev as, a, as one of his chief rivals. And obviously Medvedev took away the Grand Slam from him and, 2021, they met in two Grand Slam finals that year with Novak winning in Australia and Daniel retaliating in New York. So here they are. It's a match where Medvedev has lost his first two round-robin matches himself, both 7-6 in the third. So maybe he wants to come away with a win for sure. Novak has got to be concerned with preserving energy for the weekend. And he almost had that match in straight sets. Won the first set, and he was two points away in the tie break in the second set at 5-all. And Medvedev forced him into an error in the volley. And eventually, after Medvedev served for the match in the third set, with Novak looking quite uncomfortable physically at times and having trouble breathing, he managed to play a nearly impeccable tiebreak. Played a really good game when Medvedev served for the match and was helped by one double from Daniel. And then gets back to five ball, goes to the tiebreak, doesn't make a single mistake in the tiebreak, wins it seven points to two. So I wondered, Vaj, after that win, whether he uh, might have done himself a disservice in some ways to play over three hours the day before a much more important semifinal. But he came out, and when the chips were on the line against Taylor, certainly it was, again, not his best tennis against Fritz. So I'd say he played certainly played better against Rublev and might have been, and I would say in some ways played better against Medvedev. But he, here he is playing Fritz, who'd had a good week, who'd beaten Rude to get to the semifinals, and uh, I, I mean, beat Felix. That's the match that made him qualify for the semis. And, and he had, he'd, he'd, he'd lost a heartbreaker to Rude. And so he was having a good week, uh, Taylor Fritz. And they go to two tie breaks. And Djokovic, when the big points were on the line in both tie breaks, he came through with flying colors. So he won the first tie break 7-5, the second 8-6. And lost his serve once in the first, once in the second. Was a little agitated. You could see, again, wasn't feeling entirely comfortable. Is, is something was going on. He never, it was a little bit of a mystery. He never really explained it, but it wasn't something that required the trainer or that certainly required him to default. He just plotted on. And then we come to the final, and I, I thought, again, for the first half of the first set, he played, he looked, he looked very concerned about whether physically he was going to, how well he was going to get through this. But then as the first set progressed and he saw how easily he was holding, and he never even was pushed to deuce on his serve in two sets. Then I think he got confident that he could squeeze out a break. And sure enough, he did squeeze out a break at the end of the first set. And it pretty much carried him through. He got one break in the middle of the second set. And he really played a very clean, efficient 
match and dictated from the baseline and really looked pretty close to the top of his game, I think, of that match. So as, as you said, five matches. In the five matches, lost his serve three, uh, three times. Twice against Fritz, once against Medvedev. Nobody else broke him. The other three never yeah. broke him. Granted, a very fast court, but one of his best serving weeks of the year and possibly of his career. So it couldn't have been a better way for him to cap off the year, Vaj, to sort of say to everybody, I know that Carlos is number one this year, and I accept that, and he had a great year, and he's a terrific kid, but I still believe that I'm the best player in the world. When you go out and beat five top tenors in the year-end championships, you're going a long way toward demonstrating that that conviction is true. Yeah, I think everything you said there is spot on. And now he also finished the year with the most top 10 wins of anyone, I think. And yeah. 11 top 10 yeah. wins all year and same number of titles as Carlos. And like, he won a yeah. title at every level, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, he won a title at 250, 500,000, a year in championship and a major. And he missed like, he missed two majors and four Masters 1000s. And I mean, if the Wimbledon points counted right, he would just be 180 points behind Carlos for number oh, one. Yeah, no. So. He w- he, that was a big deal, and obviously, if he'd been, he misses four Masters, one in thousands. Had he just played anything resembling his normal schedule, played all those hardcore Masters, one thousands in the spring and the summer, the two in the spring, the two in the summer. Had he gotten his Wimbledon points, had he just fared reasonably well at the Australian and U.S. Opens, had he been there, he would have been a runaway number one in the world. But he, I don't think he was that concerned about it. He'd gotten his seventh. He finished his seventh year at number one in the world, year-end number one, seven times at the end of 2021. He had by far the record number of weeks surpassing Roger by a wide margin. So I don't think that was necessarily his priority, but it just showed you, Vonch, the standard was there. Five titles, uh, and it could easily have won six or seven. Obviously, he should have won in Paris and lost another one to Rublev back home in Serbia that you, you think he probably would have won if he'd been fully at peak efficiency. So... It, it was a, uh, a really impressive year for someone whose campaign was so disrupted by the difficulties somewhat imposed upon himself, but not entirely, that uh, not taking the vaccine and therefore not being able to compete in so many places. But it ended on an exceedingly high note. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think um, not having played as many tournaments, I think that also made him a little bit more sharp. Uh, yeah. in his tennis because he's able to train more he's able to work on fine-tuning his the aspects of his game more the spot serving the net play the all the different yeah. things that make him such a complete player and uh, you know ability to win these qu- quick types of points but also just it doesn't look like he has lost anything physically uh for 35 and a half it, no. it doesn't look like it at no, all not at all i totally agree which makes it a little bit of it still kind of mystifies me what happened there i'm so i was happy for him that it never ended up costing him what was whatever was going on those last three days in Turin, starting with the Medvedev match. But it was like it was some kind of a bug, something, because he's so fit. And yet, I think he, he, he proved it even more, beyond a doubt, by getting through those matches, despite whatever was battling, he was battling from within. So yeah. uh, it, uh, it, was, it was certainly a very gratifying year for him in the end. Yeah, just one more thing on the on the infection or bug thing. I this is completely like you know unconfirmed and not, not from a reliable source. But some people were saying that it may have something to do with an eye infection that he must have had during the during the week because there were there was one changeover or something where he was getting his eyes worked on and there was a lot of like shaking with his hands and it was yes, it was very was. strange. Yeah. 
Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, he has had issues with the eyes from time to time. That would explain it because there was certainly no reason for him to be struggling with his breath like that. And it, and obviously he didn't think he had COVID again. And that explanation makes sense to me, the, the eyes. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah, I, I think we, we covered Djokovic very well, actually. So um, the, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, I mean, obviously it's very clear in 2022, there's tier one of players, right? There's Djokovic, Nadal and Alcaraz. And I was thinking about it, and I'm, I, I'm trying not to go for recency bias because I still believe the player of the year has to be Nadal, having won two majors in the fashion that he did it in Australia from you know two, three, love forty down and two sets down in the final against Medvedev. It was so improbable. Um, and then I, I think Alcaraz is the deserving world number one. I think Nadal is the player of the year, but I think Djokovic is undoubtedly the best player in the world right now and the favorite for the Australian Open. Uh, how, how do you see those three? Yeah, I, don't, I can't really disagree with anything you've said. You, 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 especially if you're in Nadal's or Djokovic's shoes, what do you do? You don't dis, you don't uh, devalue the other tournaments, but you put a high priority on the majors. So for Rafa to come away with two, I mean, Novak would have liked to have had two instead of one, obviously, and it didn't happen. And tremendous effort from Rafa, not to mention that he was not in good shape going into the French and he was very concerned about his foot and he's getting injections before every match. And he's talking about how he doesn't have any feeling in that foot or very little feeling. Obviously it couldn't have been completely numb or he wouldn't have been able to play. What I think he meant was very little feeling. So it was an odd feeling, but still to win the Australian after missing virtually the entire second half of 2021 and walk out there with one warm up tournament in Melbourne, a 250 and win that and still win the Australian. As, and as you said, down two sets to Medvedev, down two, three, love 40, down and out, and somehow win 7-5, despite serving for the match at 5-4 and kind of blowing it there. It looked like that could have been really uh, fatal to him when he lost his serve in the 10th game of the fifth. Comes right back in typically uh, pugnacious Nadal fashion and wins two games in a row and closes it out. So, no, I think he... You really have to tip your hat to him. You have to tip your hat to Carlos because he worked for that number one ranking, set a very high standard. It was mainly what he did in the spring and obviously coupled with the U.S. Open triumph that got him to number one. He wasn't as consistent in the second half, but he has built up such an advantage by doing so well in the – especially you're starting with with winning Miami. Semis of Indian Wells winning Miami and straight on through the French. It was a good run for him. Yeah. So I, 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 I thought that was terrific. But yes, if you looked at who was really the best, who played the best tennis of the year when you looked at it in its totality, that was Djokovic. And I think yeah. he affirmed that fact in turn by beating all those players and doing it so convincingly and showing you the full range of his skills. Yep. Uh, well said. Uh, I think, Carlos, it's going to be interesting to see what he does during this offseason because obviously last year, I mean, it was all about getting physically, becoming physically a beast, right? And that's what he was able to do. That's how he was able to withstand the 24 hours of tennis that he played across his two weeks and the U.S. Open and numerous other occasions where he just looks like, you know, a veteran who's been on tour for many, many years and can just handle the physical rigors. But now having gone through the oblique tear and having six weeks of recovery from that injury and that kind of seeping closer and closer to his Australian Open uh, preparations, uh, that is going to be interesting to monitor, right? Yeah, I really have great sympathy for Carlos because, first of all, he gets injured 
in Paris there, and that knocks him out of Turin. But not only knocks him out of Turin, puts him way behind in any kind of preparation for Australia. I don't see how he's going to have enough time. He could surprise us. Obviously, if Rafa can do what he did, there's always possibility. But I think it's Im- I- unlikely that we're going to see the best Carlos until the spring, yeah. when he's got a whole bunch of tournaments under his belt. And then by then we may see some some more some really stellar play from him. I expect we will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I you have to feel sorry for it. The, the kid. He earned his ranking. He played such great tennis all year long, and then to have that injury occur when it did, and, and it's, it's one thing to have an off season, but he's going to have to be recuperating and trying to find a way somehow to be to be physically near 100 percent by the time the Australian Open starts mm-hmm. in mid January. It's going to be very, very difficult for him, and you have to really, you have to be empathetic. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, just yeah, one more thing about Nadal that I think uh, easy to forget that actually his foot seems to be fine now. Like you know, compared to the things that he was saying, you know, post French Open, right, about the ablation surgery and whatnot. I think it's kind of a positive that he's, uh, you know, the foot doesn't seem to be bothering him at this at this moment. And I walked away from his ATP finals. You know, not really panicking because, like, it's because of all the different things that has happened the last six months, and the very few matches that he's played, and the ab injury, the serve looked a little bit more back to normal re- regularly in terms of the speed and the ball toss from what I saw at the U.S. Open, and he picked up that nice win over Rude, again, a player who is very comfortable against and gives him a lot of time, uh, and so yeah, yeah, I kind of expected Nadal to go to not get out of his group, so I think. Uh, from that standpoint, I don't. Uh, I, th- I think he'll be fine in 2023. I hope you're right, and I tend to think you're right. I still worry about the foot because I think if you look at his schedule post Roland Garros, you know, <coughs> hard patch to the semis of Wimbledon, having to default to Kyrgios and playing one match prior to the U.S. Open on hard, yeah, and then managing to sort of get to the fourth round, lose to Tiafo. Okay, and most of those matches were not physically. Two of the three matches along the way were not physically tough. And then a long break again back in Paris, losing to Tommy Paul, and then the three matches. Okay, he did play, but he didn't play anything like a full schedule or too many long, taxing matches. I want, I but at least within that realm, yeah. What, what we saw, it didn't seem to be a factor at all. I just think that he knows in the back of his mind, he's, he's always wary because he feels mm. like it could. It could crop up at any time unexpectedly and start hurting him again. Let's hope yeah. that's not the case because he's he had enough other injury woes aside from the foot. He does not deserve to have to be battling that again. Yeah, for sure. Um, what, what did you think about his ATP finals, though, like overall, um, his three matches? Yeah, I agree with your assessment. I didn't expect him to get out of the group. I was a little disappointed in, uh, for instance, when he plays Fritz. It was a good first set. He served very well in the first set himself, and... Obviously, Fritz served beautifully, and the court really suited Fritz. The fast court was just to his liking. But then the first point of the tiebreaker, I was watching, I saw the toss go up on the second server. I thought, oh, no, 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 don't hit it. It was almost obvious watching just on yeah. the television that he was going to double fault, that the toss was off. And right. that ended up being very costly. And then when he played Felix and lost to Felix, he had that. He lost the game in the first set, 3-4, he's down... He's up 40 love and he loses his serve. Starts with two doubles out of nowhere and then ends up losing 40 love, 40 30 with the two doubles eventually gets broken. So there was a few, I thought that was disappointing. On the other hand, Vanch, I was impressed with his attitude about 
typically professional and prideful. He goes yeah. out for the wood matches if it was going to give him a place in the semifinals. In other words, that winning was going to have that kind of value, which it obviously didn't. And yet he was very pleased to come away with that win and treated it like it meant something to him, which means it does mean something to him. So that there's some encouraging signs that he always finds a way. I always think of Nadal of Fonch losing to Djokovic in the 2011 U.S. Open final. That was what Novak's first great, great year where he won three of the four yep. majors. And Rafa had lost the first two sets, and he squeezed out a 7-5 third set before losing decisively in the fourth. And he kept talking about it afterwards, how much that meant to him. And I don't know anybody else that would have said that or felt that. They would have been disappointed to go down 6-1 in the fourth, and they, they wouldn't have been alluding to the fact that they won the third. But then, sure enough, he played Djokovic at the start of the next year and lost the epic Australian Open final five hours, 53 minutes. So you saw that that the fact that he felt he had played a really good set at the U.S. Open in the third set, that he had carried it with him. He, he's, yeah. he's got a really positive outlook that way. He always finds an excuse to be optimistic. Yeah, for sure. I think his, pos his positive outlook and attitude in general uh, always seems to serve him well. But um, someone who did get out of that group was Taylor Fritz. And Taylor Fritz has had a really, really you know, really impressive rise, I would say, since October of the previous year, since that Indian Wells tournament. And uh, for me, the thing is, I've always, I, I've kind of seen him since 2015, 2016, when he was coming up. And I always thought he had a pretty decent backhand. You know, I always thought that it was pretty good from a ball striking perspective. And he, he, I feel like though what has changed now is he has improved his explosive movement and is a better athlete in general. So I think maybe that's why people have that impression that the stroke overall has improved. But I actually think the bigger improvement might be his forehand. The ability to, you know, terminate a rally just straight up with the forehand by itself, right? And then, you know, his serve is excellent. It reminds me a little bit of Sampras and just like how fluid the motion is and just how reliable it is. And he seems to be able to hit every single spot with it. And I, I feel like maybe the backhand is kind of been a little underrated by some some people because I think we're so used to the last 10 years of, you know, the likes of Isner yeah. and Query and Johnson, players like that who are a little bit more... I mean, they are like, you know, serve and forehand centric. So to see someone like Fritz who has serve forehand and backhand and improved those movement and areas, I, I, uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's looking good for American men's tennis. Yeah, I think you can analyze this game well. I think the forehand has improved. It's it not mightily, but significantly. Enough so yeah. that it's put, it, it's put him to the next level. You're right. The serve is always looking effortless. He does defend better. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. He did that quite well in some of the rallies against Novak. He made Novak work hard as a result. Uh, yeah, he had a good week because he started with the Rapa win. But again, to be, get back to a slight disappointment in Rapa, Rapa did not stay with him in the second set. He didn't quit by any means, but Taylor ran through the second 6-1. Yeah. He finished off Rapa in straight. Then he lost the heartbreaker to Rude. Uh, because he was 5-1 down in the last tiebreak and got it back to 6-all, and they had kind of a freakish point yeah. where Rude hit the ball off the net court. Taylor was a little unlucky to lose that match. and then, But then, to put it aside as he did, and beat Felix, who many people thought would probably beat him this time, mm. given the way Felix had ended the year with three straight titles before losing to, to Runa in Paris, that was a really good win, because Taylor split sets with Felix and they're on serve all the way in those sets and two tiebreakers, they split them and, and then he ends up 
you know, running away with the third set. So I thought that was a very good effort for him to qualify against an informed FAA. And then to play two tie breaks with, with Djokovic. Was it the best Djokovic? No, but it was a very, very good Fritz. Yeah. So yes, he to get that place only because Carlos pulls out and make the most of it, I think uh, Taylor is going to feel very good about himself heading into 2023. He has to try to avoid losses like the one to Tracy Austin's son, yeah. Brandon Holt, at the U.S. Open. Because I think he maybe got ahead of himself there. There was all this talk that he might be a candidate to win the title without Djokovic being there and Rafa, nobody's sure how well he was playing and it turned out Rafa was vulnerable that Taylor really kind of thought in the back of his mind he might he might be able to win this tournament. And mm. uh, so I think that he has to avoid that kind of thing, but boy, it's it's an encouraging all all told encouraging year. Really yeah. encouraging year. And and he, he could he could threaten for a place in the top five. Uh, in 2023, I could see a, a possibility there. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about you know. Um, actually, another thing that I'm realizing is that at five four thirty all in the second set, you know, he hits a serve and he has a backhand on the first ball, and someone in the crowd just yeah. screams. And it's like, I, I think he probably lamented that uh, point a lot because he mentioned it after yeah, the match. We'll never know. Well, you're right, absolute big point because he served for the same <clears throat> Novak and, and already Djokovic had been down love 30 at 3-5 and squeezed that game out and yes, yeah. now it seems like he's going to get the set point and probably would have made the shot, we'll never know That was, but it was terribly unlucky for him that a fan would do that and these fans sometimes can't help themselves I don't think anybody did that deliberately to mm. cause any trouble but it was a hard moment for him and it's not like there's something in the rules where the umpire can say we're going to play a left so, uh, but, but still, he stayed in there. Yeah, he didn't serve the set out there, and they went to a tie break, and it was an 8-6 tie break. So yeah. you can't say that he didn't compete well. I, I, I just see mainly very positive signs with him. Yeah, I agree. And that match against Felix was big because that was a must-win. And, you know, I think yeah. he's gotten the better of Felix twice this year because once at the ATP right. Cup as well. So. Right. Uh, but for Felix's case, uh, do you walk away with it feeling slightly disappointed? I mean, or maybe not really, because he won three titles and he made the Paris semis, and maybe you can chalk it a little bit up to fatigue, and now he's just won Davis Cup. So, uh, you know, maybe, and it was his first time there, and he's probably going to be there next year as well. So, do you, you know, maybe it's not that disappointing, right? No, no, I think all told, it's very good. Yeah, it was definitely disappointing for him. He must have liked his chances pre-tournament to get to the semis in yeah. turn at least least give himself a shot and maybe possibly all best case scenario win the tournament and it didn't happen yeah that was disappointing the runa loss he didn't play well there mm. either but it's understandable after three straight titles but then to bounce back and be the hero in the davis cup yeah and play as well as he did that's a big moment for him and his country a first ever and and that he'll look back at on the end of the year and be very pleased that he won three titles in a row had a win over Djokovic in, in the Labor Cup and wins and, and is instrumental in Canada winning the Davis Cup. Couldn't have asked for too much more than that. And overall, a level very, very high. So he, we, we've talked about him, Bonch, I know, over the course of this year. And I got to believe that next year, I'd be really surprised if we don't at least see him in a Grand Slam final. And I mm. wouldn't be shocked at all if he won one. But I, I'm expecting him to at least take the step of making it to the final and, and that that could be the kind of a springboard toward winning his first either later in the year or for 
the following year. But I'm expecting that much from him in 2023. Yeah, I, I hope you're right because uh, you know I'm a big big fan of his just uh, how he conducts himself in general and just uh, what a leader he's become at such a young age and stuff like that. But I, I still have questions about how well his game will translate when it goes back to outdoors. And just if he can avoid those early type of losses like he did, you know, at the U.S. Open to Draper or Wimbledon first round loss there. So just I feel like when he's playing at his very best, he can he can be almost untouchable on serve and serve plus one and can just run through points very efficiently. But if he's not having such a great day, and the backhand can sometimes be a little error prone. That's when I sometimes start to, I sometimes start to doubt how soon it'll come. You know. Well, I, those are legitimate concerns, very legitimate. Uh, Uncle Tony did address the backhand with him and has told him he has to improve that backhand, no doubt. I'm not as worried as you are, I guess, about the outdoors. Having seen him reach the semis of the U.S. Open 2021 and almost yeah. beat Australia. This- I've seen him and beating Zarev at Wimbledon. I've seen him play some really good matches outdoors and yeah. make some good showings at those majors. And the match with Rafa at the French this past year was a beauty. So yeah. I feel like no, he can do it. Where I think you're spot on is where he's got to be careful about those early rounds at the majors and to treat those opponents as if they're Djokovic or Nadal or as if it's the final and 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 be really primed for every single match and not get upset in the first three or four rounds, because the deeper he goes, the, the more dangerous he becomes. Mm. Uh, but I would like to add one other point. You're so right about him as a person, the character, the way he carries himself, so much dignity. And you see how he, he, he sort of, he's very composed and, and, and seldom loses his cool. And then when it's over, he, he does, he'll yell a little bit, scream. And in, in, he's, he's, uh, euphoric when it's over but i just feel like he he really he really is the embodiment of a of a, of a top class tennis athlete who knows how to handle himself in the arena i admire him for that immensely yeah absolutely um and he's also played so many matches and tournaments this year as well and he's impressively he's not looked tired at all or any kind of uh, no. fatigue i think he played like 27 tournaments and you know went deep into this year and most matches of anyone played this year so it's uh, the the whole body of work is is looking good, and he's up into six in the world. And I, I think breaking the finals thing was a huge thing. Like to get four titles and make five finals, uh, it's it's looking good for Felix. Oh, it is, and and I, I do think he needs to examine his schedule. The better he gets, and the, the the fact that he's now seen he can pull off these titles, you don't want to overplay. If yeah. he, for instance, if he, had, if he had known that he was going to win all three of those tournaments. I think he might have said to himself, no, i got to save a little bit more for Paris and Turin, and I'm skipping one of those. Yeah. But he, could, he couldn't know that going in, and he just got on a roll. Yeah. So I think that's something he's going to have to look at in the years ahead, is maybe cutting back slightly on that schedule, because he's going to be winning. He's going to be the kind of guy that wins 60 or more matches every year. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and then uh, I guess, oh yeah, we have to talk about Casper Ruud, because, um, you know, the man made... Miami final, Roland Garros final, U.S. Open final, year-end championship final. I mean, made considerable strides this year, I would say. is one of the most improved players of the year. I mean, he was eight last year, finished the year, and he'd already made some strides on hard courts. You know, he had made the semifinals last year, came out of his group, uh, was handled pretty easily, I would say, by Medvedev in the semifinal there. But uh, but this year, I would say he really uh, he, he, he really made some strides. And I, I think his backhand has improved. He definitely takes it earlier, hits it flatter. 
I think he had some mid-season technical change to it because I remember watching that thing in Miami and even at times on the clay and I just thought it was a bit too loopy, a bit too spinny at times. And now I feel like it just has more bite. And uh, I think where he where I think where he gets into some trouble sometimes is versus the very elite like Djokovic and Dalar Alcaraz because every time he's in these big finals and he has to defend and you know he, he has to go to the slice or the to get back to neutral. I feel like all those three players have such a good all-court game and they, they're just able to finish points with such ease. So they they end up getting the better of those exchanges. So that side gets a little bit exposed, but I'd say overall it's he's uh, really improved quite a bit, don't you think? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tremendously. And again, I, I'm, I, I, I can't crawl with the word you said. I, I, I know that Jim Courier, doing the commentary when Djokovic was playing him in Rome, was offering similar criticisms of the rude backhand. There's no doubt that by the U.S. Open, it was much, much better, less vulnerable. And yeah, he is driving through it better. And I, what impresses me is he doesn't he's just beginning to understand what he can do on hard courts. He surprised himself by getting to this final. And here he was, you know, in the finals of Miami on hard, finals of the French on clay, finals of the U.S. Open on hard, finals here on hard in Turin, Remarkable. So I think he's beginning to realize that he can do just about as well on hard as as he's always done on clay. That he doesn't have to think of himself having a preferred surface anymore. And that that's exciting news for for him and the sport. He's another one who handles himself. He's a like a the classy gentleman he is. And I thought he was terrific in the way he handled the defeat in the final and. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's all very encouraging. The back end, maybe it's never going to be one of the great back ends, but it's so much less of a weakness. And, and of course, he always, his forehand is terrific. Problem he has with Djokovic, I think, is that Djokovic kind of challenges him and says, okay, I'm going to go forehand to forehand, and you got to show me that yours is better. And he does that with a lot of guys. That can be a problem, and you're right. And then Rafa pummels away at his backhand with his forehand cross court. So, yeah, they, he's going to have some difficulty <coughs> with them. But there's no reason that he can't do well against just about everybody else and make his mark and stay stay in the range that he is next year. I could see him having a very similar year. Would it surprise me if he won a major? Yes. Hmm. I, I give Felix a better chance somewhere along the line of pulling one off. But it wouldn't surprise me to see him in a bunch of semis and finals of majors. You know, maybe a couple of semis, maybe a semi and a final, something like that. Yeah, totally agree. And I think, uh, you know, he did well to hang with Djokovic until 5-all in the first set. 
because yes, uh, yes. and then I think five six thirty all that's when I really saw that pattern play out because they were going backhand to backhand and Djokovic felt so confident he could go inside out on his forehand and just kind of run rude from rude around from the baseline and then he just kind of got the error on the set point from the backhand cross and just grew from strength to strength from from there so yeah yeah and also Bonte, it's very difficult when your opponent and joke in this case we're talking about Djokovic is holding serve that easily i mean yeah. you're not even pushing him to do so those service games are flying by and then you're you're back under the pressure cooker again immediately and that i think had to be difficult and it was a, it was a, Djokovic had pinpoint accuracy that day on his serve and that was important given the way he was feeling but but yeah i i don't know if it's a great matchup for him against novak but no. uh he'll keep trying and, <laughs> He'll yeah. keep beating a lot of other top players. And the, look what he did to Rublev. Okay, Rublev was a little bit off in the semis, but he just took him apart. Yeah. Something that I think Rude could have done a little bit better is attack Djokovic's second serve a little bit more. I think it took a little bit too much of a defense. Just in general in this match, I thought he was a little bit too passive. Just wasn't going after his biggest shot on the court, which is the forehand. I mean, okay, you're not really... I mean, Djokovic's forehand is world-class as well, so not too much of an advantage there. But nonetheless, I think he could have used that little bit better. I think Djokovic's average second serve speed was not super high. It didn't need to be. But, you know, Rude wasn't no, doing enough, I don't think, to punish it as much as he would have liked because, you know, maybe maybe he might have created a breakpoint chance if that had been the case. But could I be. Could be. I just think a lot of... It's funny. The commentators talk a lot about that. And they, they, they hone in a lot of, on the speeds. But yeah. I think what Djokovic does is keep himself out of trouble. Gets a heavy, heavy. He gets enough spin on it and yeah. enough depth that he that he's basically sort of daring the guys to say, "Okay, what can you come up with? I don't think you can beat me with a winning return. Yeah, I, and, and I want you to prove to me that you can." And yeah, for some reason, Rude, I think in general, yeah, he's a, he he could be more aggressive on second serve returns, maybe in general. Yeah. But I don't know how well it would necessarily have worked against Novak that day. And I think Djokovic would also have adjusted. Yeah, and you. And Good hit point. more slices and challenge them that way. Yeah, I think it's a very tricky balance when you're playing someone as complete as Djokovic because yeah. you want to do what's in your identity and what you know best, but you also don't, and you don't want to play completely out of your comfort zone because then, yeah, like then you could lose two and two, and it's like, yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's very tricky all around, I guess. But it's good news for him is that he's beating pretty much ninety five percent of the players. So yes, yeah. oh yes, and he had listen, he had a slump after the Open. He lost four out of six matches. Understandable because he got into his second Grand Slam final of the year, and it's a tricky time after the Open to sort of figure out your priorities and try to get, gear yourself up toward the year-end championships. But it was understandably have a bit of a lull, but then to come back so strong in turn was just the tonic he needed. Yeah, uh, another player who I have some mixed feelings about in this tournament is uh, is Andre Rublev. You know, I want to give him credit for getting out of his group. With uh, Medvedev, Djokovic, and Tsitsipas, I did not think that would happen. But uh, you know, once again, like you know, it was a it was a good breakthrough to get to the semis, and I was impressed by his fight and his desire and his comeback against Medvedev from from a set down. And he's now won his last two matches against Medvedev, and it was good this time. There was no such caveat like last time when they played in Cincinnati, and you know, Medvedev kind of ran into a camera, and there was all of that. But joke, but none of that this time. And Rublev won it fair and square, and. Uh, you know, he he pulled off that win well, against Stefanos. Not, not only, sorry to interrupt, not only yeah. did he win it fair and square, but the psychological blow that he took to have seven set points right. get away yeah. in the first set, led the set five to serve for it, had all those set points in the tiebreak, 
didn't close it out. I, I thought it was going to be a six and two match at that point. Right. That's where I give him the most credit that he came back strong, won the second set, and then even when Medvedev came back from six three down and saved a whole yeah. bunch of match points again in the third set tiebreak, Rublev didn't panic, and he actually won three rallies in that tiebreak. Over thirty shots, over, right? Over thirty shots. Yeah, and that, and you never would bank on him doing that against Medvedev. So yeah, I agree with you. There's some signs that are encouraging. On the other hand, then he gets beaten so soundly. Yeah. by Rude in the semis. It should have been a closer match. At least you would think so. But still, what he takes away is he beat both Medvedev and Tsitsipas. Two good wins. Yeah. And, and didn't play badly against Novak. He caught Novak at his best. So, yes, I just... My fear is that he stays... He'll stay about where he is for the next three or four years. Yeah. It's going to be... He plays a lot. He'll win maybe three or four titles a year. Maybe... A, 250 here, a 500 there, a couple of 500s, and keep getting his points that way and keep his ranking up that way and go to the quarters, maybe the semis of some of the majors, maybe. But I, I'm not I, I'm not quite sure I can envision him, even with, <coughs> even with his improved backhand bunch. I think his backhand is much, much better than it was, but he's still just emotionally a little unstable at times. And he gets yeah. so upset with himself for missing an easy shot and and he advertises it when that happens he's it's so obvious that he's he's furious with himself so i think sometimes he's his own worst enemy i think that's the 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 last point is the biggest thing for me the the emotional volatility that you mentioned uh that just it seems to come and go right because against medvedev and Tsitsipas, we didn't really see that but then against djokovic and even at times against rude i mean it was two all 40 15 in the first set and right from there, he once he got broken there, he kind of, kind of went away a little bit, and yeah, and also yeah, you, you saw did. those emotional uh, instability yeah, he, again. You're right. The, the the interesting thing was in the Medvedev match, though, he did actually vent with the umpire. He was really annoyed about a couple of calls. Yeah. He and and he was letting the umpire have it at the changeover. And what amused me about that is he <laughs> let seven points get away, and he wants to bicker with the umpire about. Not the set points. It was about calls earlier in the tiebreak. So yeah. he's funny that way, but at least that least we saw him just get back on the horse that day and start competing again and calm down. Too often he doesn't, and the other players know that about him and expect that of him. So I hope I hope he can conquer that. But that's not easy. That's not an easy habit to break. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and you know once he beat Sitsipas in the in the uh, in that quarterfinal match, essentially, right? Uh, what was, right. you know, this comments that Stefano's made afterwards about his, uh, his, you know, beating him with the few tools that he has. You know, what did you think of that statement? Because on the one hand, I can't say he's completely wrong. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't reflect very well on Stefano's to be saying that after a match that he's lost 6-3 and 6-2 in the last two sets. And, you know, and it, it just didn't come across very well from his side, right? Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. It was a little tasteless and unnecessary. Keep that within your camp. Just go back to your father and Mark Villapusas and say, why would I lose this guy? I've got more, I've got much more versatility and, and so many more tools. What went wrong? And just examine that. But it's not fair to do that to a guy that's just beaten you. And Stefanos is perplexing that way. He comes out yeah. with these comments from time to time. And there's parts of him that I really like. And he's, he's interesting and he's a fun player to watch. And, but yeah, that was not, 
wise and and it, and it was it was condescending and, mm. and and also it just gives rublev the incentive i've always thought those two were very respectful of each other now yeah. i think rublev is going to have a special edge every time he plays against sitsipas to say hey fella i can beat you again you know why, why did you say that about me yeah i thought i thought rublev's answer in response to that comment was great you know he tackled it head on he was respectful at the same time and he walked through it like shot by shot. <laughs> I thought that was yeah, that was pretty yeah. neat. Yeah, he handled it well. He did. You're right. And just on Stefanos, I I heard Jim Courier afterwards uh, in the commentary, and he was talking about how he suggests the Sitsipas family might need a sort of therapy session because um, you know this thing with him and his father is getting a little out of control. I mean, you saw in that third set, there was many times in that match where it legitimately hampered his focus, like in the middle of the match because. Just, you know, constantly, his father is constantly talking to him. And I, I don't think he wants to hear that advice. Nobody wants to hear that, you know, someone shouting in your, you know, from the corner of your box uh, like that when you're playing such an important match. And, you know, he spiraled out of control a little bit, two double faults to give the second break. And just uh, at times he completely went away. And has to be said, obviously, Rublev, I thought, played a very good last two sets. He defended his second serve much better than I had thought originally coming in. And, you know, so he deserves credit. But I just think it's not going to work out. It's not working out with Stefanos and his dad right now, uh, and hasn't been. Well, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you in, entirely. I think what's interesting about it is the fact that they, they, the tour decided to allow this coaching, you know, in a limited form when you're down the same end as your coach. That too could be to Stefanos's detriment for just the reasons you cited. He doesn't want to hear that much. Meantime, I think the guy that knows more about him now and is in a position to, to help him a lot more, is Philip Pusis. Yeah. So I really think that Stefanos, I honestly believe what he should do is go to his father and say, Dad, I want you to be my father. I don't want you to be my coach. And we can talk about matches when I have a little distance from it uh, over dinner later that night, and I'll be happy to hear what you have to say. But while it's going on, I want Mark to be there, and I want Mark to have the full authority to help me with my game. Because by all accounts, Mark has really helped him a lot with his volleying technique, and he's been quite a good coach. And I, I, I think the father should understand, and frankly, his mother is not much better. Yeah. If you watch his mother during these matches, and she's, she gets, I'm not saying she's hysterical, but she's very animated in a negative way. And they'll put the camera on her after he's lost a point, and you can tell she's sort of replaying it and criticizing him. Why did you do that? And you can, you can tell that she's also... Uh, too negative and and too uh, too much on edge, too hard edged. So yeah. both the parents listen. We can respect the fact of how much they care, how much they want for him, how much they love him. All of that is true. But the best thing they could do, especially his father, would be to step back right now and and just give Philippusis the authority he needs to do the job. And I think Philippusis would do a fine job uh, for Stefanos Sitsipas, no doubt about it. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I think, what do you think about Tsitsipas's year overall, though, as a whole? Because on the one hand, you look at it and he's finished fourth, just like he did last year, played loads of tournaments. But once again, he's only won two titles, and it's the Monte Carlo title and one t uh, title on grass, which is a, it's a good thing. That's a first for him in Mallorca. Yeah. But, you know, he's lost yeah. five finals and, um, you know, Roland Garros defeats and U.S. Open defeats were slightly disappointing. Obviously, he still has this ongoing stuff with his father and just, uh, you know, lost early a lot to the same players. Like, he lost twice to Chorich, you know, lost to, like, you know, players like Alcaraz, Rune. I just feel like there's more players 
now on the tour who can who can really expose those weaknesses, particularly from his backhand and his return of serve. And I just wonder if like because next year is gonna be such a critical year, I feel like, for him and at least to get back to another major final or at least he should be doing better at the French and you know, no reason why he can't make the second week at least at the US Open. And I, I just feel like while it seems on paper it was a good year and maybe for anyone else, I think relative to expectations, it was mediocre to poor. What do you think? It was. It was. Because he could easily have ended up finishing higher in the rankings, particularly since Djokovic was beneath him with all the reasons we discussed. That U.S. Open loss was very costly. He should have been going deep into the draw there. And he can't afford to be doing things like that. And, and, he, and he does have to win more finals. There's no doubt about that either. So, and he kept talking early in the year about it. You know, he, he, he could see himself getting to three, getting to two. He, he, I, maybe he put too much thought into that instead of yeah. just going out and winning the matches, letting the results take care of himself, take care of themselves. And then when the time came, when it's the end of the year, see where you are then. Yeah, in some ways it was a, it was a disappointing campaign for him. There were some positives in the yeah. sense that he had a couple of wins over Medvedev in Cincinnati. He played a really good semi there, and he beat him again here in a, one of the, in a really dramatic match in Turin after he'd let a couple of match points get away in the second set tiebreak, and Medvedev served for the match in the third against him. He still found a way to win. That was very gritty. So it's nice that he, he now seems to believe in himself against Medvedev, and uh, so he's made some strides in some areas. And as far as his game, yeah, I don't disagree with you. Uh, some work needs to be done there. I don't know if he's ever going to fully solve the problem that he has a very artistic, beautiful back end, but a shot that can be attacked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know how he ever fully resolved that, but he definitely is, can improve and is improving on the volley. And there are times, like in the, most of the match against Djokovic in turn, where the serve can be very impressive. And uh, it's maybe an underrated serve. So, yeah, he, I would say he underperformed this year. I agree. Yeah, and that's because I hold him in such high standards, right? I mean, his forehand is world-class. His transition game is really good. His serve, like you said, is very underrated. So, like, and, and he's become a good all-round player. I mean, the tactics that he used against Medvedev in both Cincinnati and and here, you know, Medvedev was thrown off a little bit by. And he's turned around that head-to-head somewhat. I mean, that still still has to beat him in a hard-court major. But he's won four of their last six now. And I do think it's a little more complicated for Medvedev than it used to be. So that will be definitely um, interesting to see next year. But... Also on Medvedev his whole year, right? <laughs> since the Australian Open final, since that match against uh, Rafa, there's obviously been some outside things that he can't really control, like the hernia surgery, uh, not being able to play Wimbledon. And, uh, you know, I don't think his serve has looked right since the hernia operation either at times, just clusters of double faults and some big moments and matches. And uh, some people, I think some a lot of players are understanding the playbook on how to play him as well, you know, with the deep return position and, um, you know, exposing his awkwardness sometimes at net and things like that, and just a little bit fragile at times, closing out matches like we saw this week. Still, still positive that he's able to play. You know, lose three three matches like that and third set tie breaks, having served for the match in two of them. But you know, what do you what is, what is your feeling on him for next year? Like, do you think he rebounds from this? And um, like, how much better does he get from here? Or have we maybe have we seen the best of him? Because this definitely feels like this was an outlier uh, from the last three seasons. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little... I got mixed feelings about what's going to happen with him. I mean, he did lose an awful lot of tight matches. In some ways, those losses in Turin 
two, he serves for the match twice. You know, he serves the match against both Novak <coughs> and Stepanos and couldn't close out either one. And then he had his chances against Rublev. And that, that was somewhat symbolic of the year. Too many of the tight ones got away. He didn't adjust that well to, to a top of the line nick at the U.S. Open and lost to Kyrgios there. Yeah, they, they, I, you may be right. The hernia may have contributed with the serve, but there were times I, I thought he served really quite well. Uh, and and cause I, I don't sense it's necessarily a physical issue so much as it's mental with him. But he, he, he is something of a head case. And, he, he, you know, you see him like when he was losing the third set tiebreak to Sitsipas and was, he lost the first six points. And he's, he's just jabbering away and talking to his corner. And as if he wants them, it reminded me a bit of Nick, as if he wanted them to sort of go out and solve it for him and, and play the points for him instead of solve it yourself, do it yourself. We, we can't fix it for you. And so there's, there's, there's a little bit of a frantic side to him at times. On the other hand, we know this is a guy that at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 won the U.S. Open and was within striking distance of taking a second straight major in Australia. I still think that match set him back for the whole year, yeah. regardless of the hernia operation, regardless of not being allowed to play Wimbledon. I think the Nadal loss had had lasting implications, maybe with a really good start in Australia. I would say Australia may be the key to his whole year. I think he needs to do something pretty big there, uh, you know, to sort of get him, get him to sort of alter his mindset again and get himself thinking the way he was. Because this this was definitely not the year that he expected. Just a couple of titles, you know. That's again, that's not what we standard we expect from him. And even with the time away with the hernia and missing Wimbledon, he still had many many opportunities winning tournaments. He had a loss to Stan Babrinka in the fall. He, he was not the same player that we saw in 2021. And yeah. uh, I I'm fascinated to see. And as I say, I think Melbourne may be one of the keys. To the entire 2023 campaign. I think he needs a, a really strong showing there it, uh, at the start of the year. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I completely agree. And, um, you know, like he hasn't made, like I, I would say since in, in, in at least the hardcore majors, the one good thing is that he's been getting to the second week at least, even when he's not been as, as best since the 2018 US Open and the every hardcore major. But now I just wonder, with him being seated seventh, uh, the possibility of having drawing, you know, one of those top six, one of those top four players in the quarters uh, onwards, he's going to have those points to defend, and he might fall even back further. And I don't know what's going to happen with Wimbledon next year and the whole situation there. Yeah, no, nobody does. It's a, uh, Frank. My guess right now, if I had to guess right now, is that Wimbledon will reverse its position and allow these guys to play because I don't think they want to see this become. Uh, uh, something that lingers, and I think they saw that the other majors did not support them. You know, they they they've allowed these players in, so I think they don't want to be on an island here. So I do suspect that Medvedev will be back at Wimbledon, but uh, he, he's doing some soul searching right now. And for him to finish this year at seven, none of us would have called that. None of us would have believed that at the start of this year, and. Uh, it will make it difficult in Australia. On the other hand, who knows who he draws in the quarters? It's it's really kind of hard. hard. And let's just say it was Carlos, and Carlos lost early because he's physically not ready yet. Then he might get a break and yeah. play somebody different in the quarters. It could work out okay. But I do believe that that tournament will have immense importance to him 
and his entire outlook for the next year. Yeah, exactly. Um, someone who was not at the finals, though, this year was uh, Holger Rune. Just missed it. Um, obviously, incredible rise by him. Was ranked outside the top 100 to start the year and finished 11. And, you know, obviously just won the Paris Masters, beat five top 10 players, saved match points against Stan. And we know how great he's been post-US Open and also earlier during the clay season. And he seems to have one of those really complete games, just like Carlos Alcaraz. And, you know, uh, it, it just seems like he's for sure going to be here next year. I, I, um, I'm trying to envision uh, how, how this tournament would have looked like if he actually played it, because um, Holger is definitely up there, I would say, in, um, in, in terms of players to watch for next year, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, you can't have a run like he did in Paris. Granted, obviously, he could have been out of the tournament against Stan. He was fortunate on a couple of match points of Stan missing returns, block returns that should have come back into play. Leave that aside. He, it was a tr- really spirited, stunning run. And you kind of saw that you saw into the future when you watched him. And you, and I believe that he's, he, he will have a very good chance to be top five in 2023. And go deep into whether he's ready to win a major quite yet. I don't know. But I expect to see him in the latter stages of a couple of majors for sure. And I expect him somewhere in that range of four or five in the world by the end of next year. It would surprise yeah. me if he wasn't. He's a little hot-headed at times. Yeah. He, you know, he, he's, he's highly emotional, highly charged. Uh, he, need, he gets very worked up about it, things. And that, could, that, and that was costly some, at some stages in the middle of this year. And he had a slump, and I think part of it was just his disposition. Yeah. But his game is his game is there. There's no denying the talent, and he will be very hard to beat next year. And he'll be in the thick of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts as well on the on the Davis Cup, just in general, what your feelings are about it. Ever since this format change happened, uh, I just feel like you know we have an oversaturation now of team events, and also the timing of the year. Um, granted, the last couple of years we still had Djokovic and Nadal in it, but now and now we also have the United Cup coming up in January. But what are your feelings of the Davis Cup, having watched so many of those home away ties in your career covering tennis, and to see where it is right now in one location in Madrid? I mean, sorry, not in Madrid, in Spain, and uh, in one neutral venue like this, having all the teams battle it out for the winner at the end. Um, you know, how, how how does it make you feel? A little bit saddened. I think it, I, I thought it deserved a little more of a spotlight. I mean, I watched a lot of it. Watched a lot of it, enjoyed it tremendously. Thought it was terrific that the Canadians won. The format is really dramatic now because in the old days, you know, it was two singles the first day, doubles doubles on Saturday, two more singles Sunday, best of five in, in those matches. Now we're best of three, and it's only the three matches between the two teams. The doubles becomes even more crucial. And I thought it was very exciting, yeah. uh, but a little lost in the shadows. You know, it's late in the year. I don't know how many people are following it. I, it did have nice coverage on Tennis Channel in the States, which was, was an improvement over last year that that was the case. Yeah. Uh, but I, I still believe Davis Cup deserves more. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Uh, yeah. But I, I believe it, you know, it should stand alone as the team event. And I and I still believe the public gets confused at times. They see the Labor Cup. They saw the ATP Cup in the past. Now we're going to have a brand new combined women's men's team event at the start of next year. And I don't think the public can sort it out. I don't think they, don't think they fully understand that it was Davis Cup 
that started in 1900. This mm. was the preeminent and really the only team event and the only thing that mattered. Now it, it's there, and there was there was there was good support for it, and it was a nice last three rounds there in Spain, the yeah. quarters on. And but uh, somehow, somehow, I believe that that the competition should be. I'd like to see it highlighted more in the media, on television, everywhere, and made to be the event that it once was. And that may take some time, and it may take some more tinkering, but I hope it happens. Yeah, uh, those are all those are all pretty good points about the coverage and just uh, about it being one of the premier events since 1900. I I would only just add, uh, you know, they do advertise themselves as like the world, world like almost like the World Cup of tennis in a way, and uh, you know having seen some of the soccer or some of the football this this week and watching the World Cup, everyone can just plan ahead. They know that it's every four years. It's uh you know, the location is told ahead of time and it's you know, it it is like the biggest event going on. And if tennis could have something like that, you know, I was thinking instead of having like countries, if we just had a World Cup type thing every four years and you just had like the top players pick, you know, you have like team captains, you have like let's say Shviantek, world number one on the WTA side picks one one female and picks two other males or something like that and you just you have like a combined world cup every four years men and the women compete together and you make it this huge big thing almost like a major i just i just don't know it's like a it's a, probably not not going to happen but oh, just something it's a i throw out yeah and there've been people have looked at it sometimes there's been talk about making it more like the Ryder cup and maybe you did it every two years four years is a little too long a gap for me i must say uh, you know it's Certain a player like Djokovic getting on his career or in Nadal might they might find themselves out of luck and mm. not be a part of that. But maybe every two years, you, you you definitely need they need to keep experimenting, keep thinking about what the solution is. Yeah, and 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 then th- this event can become uh, can move beyond itself again to a, to a much higher level. Yeah, for sure. And then you also have the Olympics <laughs> every four years, so that's that's another thing. That right. Like... True. True. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, lots to digest, lots for our listeners to uh, to ponder about as we finish this episode. Uh, it was a great to it was a great way, I think, to wrap this whole season up, Steve. Uh, pleasure having you again. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Fine, thanks for having me. It's uh, uh, always enjoyable, and I look forward to to the next time we talk. Yeah, looking forward to it already, Steve. <laughs>